do you ever get tired of being tied down? Like you're stuck and you just can't go anywhere? Maybe you wish you could have a conversation without being stuck in one place. Now you can! Have you tried going wireless? With this kind of freedom, now you can talk anywhere in the world. On a mountain. In the street. Or in the desert. While you're surfing. Or even on the moon. Anywhere you want. Go wireless today. I have no idea what to say after that video, honestly. Let's just pray and go home, you know? No. Thank you to our video team, tech team, and Matt Thomason for that awesome voiceover. Appreciate that a lot. You could have another job being a voice announcer for infomercials, I guess, but appreciate that video. But for you guys who are new, welcome to First Church. My name is Chad. We're starting a new series today. So glad you carved out some time to be with us. And if you are new, we want to let you know we are one church that meets in multiple locations. So we have family right now that's meeting out at our Stone Canyon campus, as well as those who will be joining us online later. So if you would, put your hands together and welcome them into our conversation today. Let me just see with the show of hands at all of our campuses, how many of you guys like roller coasters? Anybody like roller coasters? Okay, a good number of you. How many of you are scared to death of roller coasters, don't like them at all? Okay, just about as much. Wow, I'm a little bit surprised by that. I personally love roller coasters, and I found this video not too long ago of the 78-year-old Swedish grandmother who rode a roller coaster for the very first time, and her family filmed the entire thing. They documented the entire experience, and I want you to take a look at this granny right a roller coaster for the first time. I don't think your hair moved the entire time, did it? We took Alex, our son, on his first roller coaster ride about two years ago. He was three years old, went to Disneyland, and he didn't have the same experience that that Swedish grandmother had. Take a look at a picture of him on this ride. You can tell he was scared to death. Yeah, he didn't like it at all until we got off the ride. Then as soon as we got off of it, he was like, hey, mommy, daddy, can I ride it again? And that's how it works sometimes. You've probably heard it said, life is a roller coaster. And you know, it really is. Life is full of exciting highs, but unexpected lows. And you never know what's coming around the next corner. You never know what's going to happen next. Life is up and down. Life is a roller coaster. And that's the way it's going to be as long as we live this life in this world. But the Bible promises that we don't have to ride this roller coaster of life alone. 
The Bible says that God wants to stay connected with us and do life with us so that no matter what we face or what we experience, he's with us. He's by our side. He wants to surround us during the tough times. He wants to celebrate with us during the good times. He wants to give us strength when we feel weak. God wants to do life with us. But the key to that happening is we have to make sure that we stay connected to him. And one of the primary gifts that God has given us to stay connected to him is the gift of prayer. In fact, in Psalm 145, verse 18, it says, The Lord is close to everyone who prays to him, to all who truly pray to him. Now, in theory, we all get this. In theory, we all understand this, and we believe that prayer is important, and it's a good thing. But practically speaking, if we're honest with ourselves... Prayer is something we probably all struggle with at times. Practically speaking, prayer is something that, well, we can be kind of weak in. Prayer is something that we kind of put on the back burner. Prayer is something that we often neglect. Our prayer lives are not always what they should be or even what they could be. And I think this is all part of Satan's plan. This is all part of his scheme. I'm not sure if you're aware of this or not, but we have an enemy who is prowling around like a roaring lion just looking for someone to devour, just looking for a life to wreck. And Satan knows just how powerful prayer is. He knows that a praying church is a dangerous church. He knows that a healthy prayer life leads to a stable and content spiritual life. He knows that when God's people pray, things happen. That not only do we live different lives, different lives from the rest of the world, but also we make a huge impact on the world around us. So I believe Satan tries to do whatever he possibly can to make sure on a practical level that prayer doesn't play a crucial role in our lives. And I'm convinced that Satan would love nothing more than for us to theoretically believe prayer is important, but practically never make it the priority it should be. Never make it the priority it should be in our lives. And again, if we're being honest, isn't that what often happens? Because even though we know prayer is important, we don't always treat prayer like it's an essential element of who we are. In fact, sometimes we treat prayer more like a fire extinguisher, or a church pew. Now let me explain what I'm talking about. We all appreciate fire extinguishers, right? We're glad uh, to have them around, but fire extinguishers are for emergency purposes only, right? We don't use a fire extinguisher every single day. If we did, then we'd have some problems. Fire extinguishers are for crisis situations. When things get bad enough, when, when things get desperate enough, we turn to a fire extinguisher to put out a fire. And sometimes that's how we treat prayer. Prayer is a good thing. We like having the option to pray, but prayer is something that we use more for emergency purposes only than anything else. Oh, when things get desperate enough, when things get bad enough, then we pull out prayer and we use it, but it's not something that we necessarily use all the time like we should. I've seen this bumper sticker numerous times, and you probably have too. When all else fails, pray as if prayer is a last resort, as if when you're out of all other options, when things get bad enough, desperate enough, then you pray. Sometimes we treat prayer like a fire extinguisher. Other times we treat prayer more like this church pew. Now this is a nice, good-looking church pew, kind of ornate, 
And sometimes this is how we treat prayer because when do we use a church pew? Well, on Sundays, right, when we come to church. Or maybe we use it for special religious context or ceremonial context. If we go to a wedding or funeral, we might sit in a church pew. Maybe if it's a holiday celebration, we might come to church and sit in a church pew. Church pews are good, but we only use them again occasionally. It's something we don't use every single day. And sometimes that's how we treat prayers where? as well. Prayer is a good thing, but we use it just in certain contexts, in religious contexts, in ceremonial contexts. When we come to church, we expect to pray. When we go to a funeral or maybe we attend a wedding, we expect to hear a prayer. Prayer is something we do or we participate in, but only in certain religious contexts, certain ceremonial contexts. Again, it's not something that we use every single day. And I think what God wants us to understand is that we're not supposed to treat prayer like we treat a fire extinguisher or a church pew. I think God wants us to treat prayer like something else, like one of these, a cell phone. Now again, stick with me here. Whether you like it or not, whether you agree with it or not, in our culture today, we take our cell phones with us everywhere. We have this mindset that we cannot live without them. We take them with us in our cars. We take them with us to work, to friends' house. We have them in our homes. If we go out to eat, we have them with us. Sometimes we eat our meals on our phones, right? You've seen people do it. You've done it too. When we go to bed at night, we put our phones by our bedside to charge them so that they're waiting on us. When we wake up, the next morning we take our phones with us everywhere even to church and so just to prove my point right now if you have a cell phone on you I want you to get it out I'm sorry if you're playing a game right now on your phone I'm interrupting you or you're looking up social media stop just for a second if you don't care get your phone out and just hold it up in the air at all of our campuses hold your phone up and now look around don't tell me we don't feel like we can't live without our cell phones my point exactly you can put it down we take our cell phones with us everywhere and have you ever left the house in the morning and realized you've forgotten your phone that moment of panic you know it's like oh I got to turn back around I don't care if I'm late for this appointment or late for this meeting there's no way I could go a day without my phone now we used to in previous generations but not in our current culture right we take our cell phones with us everywhere and I think that's how God wants us to approach prayer God wants us to realize that prayer is a gift, it's a tool, it's an instrument that he's given us that we're supposed to take with us everywhere. In fact, the Bible says in Ephesians 6, 18, and pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. Prayer isn't a spiritual tool or instrument we just use on occasion, it's something we should use anywhere and everywhere. And honestly, if we are as passionate about prayer as we are our cell phones, I think our lives would look radically different and probably the world around us would look radically different. But again, if we're being real this morning, we're not near as passionate about prayer as we should be. And I wonder why that is. Could it be that it's because many of us, at least subconsciously, have lost sight of what prayer is and because we've lost sight of what prayer is, we've also lost sight of the reality that it does make a difference. Now, we're full of excuses for why we don't pray. And you probably have heard excuses before why our prayer lives aren't what they should be. For some people, they say, you know, I used to pray all the time. I was one of those prayer warriors. People used to come to me and ask me to pray for them. And I used to be part of this prayer group, and I used to journal my prayers. I used to pray all the time. But then, but then some situation happened in my life, some circumstance occurred. 
And I just don't have the passion for prayer like I used to. Oh, I still think it's a good thing, and I still think prayer works, but my excitement about prayer kind of dwindled after that. I've heard other people talk about how they're intimidated to pray. They think they're going to do it wrong. They don't know where to start, and they think they're going to say the wrong words, and so they're not confident in their own ability to pray, and so they just don't do it. And I've had... I've seen this firsthand on numerous different occasions. Sometimes people will come to me because people have kind of unfair or maybe unreal expectations for preachers. And one of those unreal expectations or ideas that people have about preachers is that we have some special connection to God. And so I will have people come to me and say, now Chad, I'm just going to tell you about this because I know you have a special connection to the man upstairs. And sometimes people laugh about it like they know I shouldn't be, that, that they shouldn't be saying that. Other times people really mean it like they think that I'm you know, closer to God than everyone else. And it's because they're not confident in their own prayer life to actually offer the prayer themselves. They want somebody else to do it. Now again, I'm not against praying for anybody. If somebody comes to me and wants me to pray, I'm going to do it. And I think there is power when we get a bunch of God's people together praying in unity for something. I'm not denying that at all. But don't ever think that one person has a special connection to God that you can't have. Because honestly, whatever connection that person has, it's also available to you. Now, other people think that prayer is kind of boring or, it's, or it just takes too much effort or discipline. And so we're just, we live such busy lives, we just don't have the time. Now, we give time to everything else, but we put prayer on the back burner. And there are dozens of other reasons that people give why their prayer life isn't what it should be, why it may be weak or maybe lifeless. But could it be that the real reason why we don't pray like we should is because we've lost sight of what prayer is we've lost sight of the reality that it does make a difference. And I think that might be the case, and that's exactly what Satan wants. And Jesus knew that might be the case. Jesus knew that over time, we might give up on prayer, or we may not be as faithful to prayer or passionate about prayer as we should be. And so Jesus addresses this very issue in Luke chapter 18, when he tells a pretty well-known parable. It's a parable about a persistent widow. So if you have your Bibles or a Bible app on your phone or tablet, that's what we're going to study today, Luke chapter 18. And we're going to look at this story that Jesus told, this parable that Jesus told about this persistent widow. Now you may not be aware of this, but Jesus liked to teach in stories. He liked to use stories called parables to make a point, to illustrate deeper truths. And so he would use common imagery to illustrate an uncommon truth. But here's the thing, parables aren't just nice moral stories. Sometimes that's how people take them, but they're more than that. Parables were meant to wake us up. There's shock value in every single parable. They're supposed, to, they're supposed to wake us up so that we realize the realities of who God is and His way of life. Now, sometimes when Jesus would tell a parable, He would just tell it, and then He wouldn't explain it at all. He would want those listening or us reading years later to try to discern what He's talking about and compare it to other scriptures and figure out the point. He wants us to think about it. And sometimes that's how the gospel writers, when they recount these parables, when they tell us these parables, that's what they do. They just present the parable as Jesus told it, and then we're left to kind of discern what it means. But that's not always the case. Sometimes Jesus directly tells us, this is the point of this parable, and sometimes the gospel writers tell us this is the point of this parable. And that's what happens in Luke chapter 18. Luke, our gospel writer, he wants to make sure that Jesus' point in telling this parable is crystal clear. And that's why he gives us a purpose statement in verse 1. Look at what Luke writes. 
Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them, here's our purpose statement, to show them that they should always pray and not give up. Luke says, here's why Jesus told this story. He wanted to make sure that his followers would not give up and stop praying. Now, why would Jesus tell a story like that? Because Jesus knew that we might not, might not always be as passionate about prayer as we should be. He knew that we might lose sight of what prayer is and the reality that it does make a difference. He knew that having an active and healthy prayer life would be a challenge for us. And he knew that we might give in to Satan's lies, those lies that he's whispering in our ears saying, hey, prayer's not worth the effort. I mean, maybe prayer works for other people, but not for you. And so to prevent us from giving up on prayer... Jesus told us this story. And the story begins in verse 2 of chapter 18. Jesus said, In a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared about men. So he doesn't fear God, he doesn't care about men. Love Jesus, love light Jesus was not his life motto, okay? He doesn't fear men, he doesn't, care, I mean, he doesn't fear God, he doesn't care about men. Verse 3. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea, Grant me justice against my adversary. So Jesus begins this story by introducing to us two key characters, and I want to pause for a second to talk about them. And these were two key people or types of people in the first century world that Jesus' audience would have been very familiar with. And the first one is the judge. This is the first person that we're introduced to in this story. Now, I want to make it very clear, this is not a Jewish judge. Because typically, when there was a dispute between two Jews in the first century world, this is what they would do. They would first want to try to keep it among their own people. Because the Jews hated the the Romans. So they didn't want to take it to a Roman official to try to, uh, to try to settle their dispute. They would want for it to be settled among their own people. So they would go to a Jewish rabbi, a religious leader, with their dispute. And then after the rabbi, I guess, gave them his answer, if they didn't both agree, if both parties didn't agree with whatever he said, then the next step was to go to a Roman judge, a judge appointed by the Roman government. Now, these Roman judges, which is what this widow goes to in our parable, they were not well respected by the Jewish people. For one, again, the Jews hated the Romans. But two, if you didn't have money or influence to bribe one of these judges, they wouldn't take your case, let alone side in your favor. These judges were not well respected. They did not have a positive reputation and this is the type of judge that we're dealing with. Now, there's another person that Jesus introduces us to in this parable, and that's the widow. Now, we're not told a whole lot about this widow. We're not told her name or her past uh, history, why she's in the situation she's in. We don't even know what her case is all about exactly. But because she's a widow, we do know a little bit about her. And what we know is the deck is stacked against her. See, women in this day, unfortunately, had no legal rights. In fact, even to appear in a court, you had to have a man speak for you. They weren't allowed to speak up in public. And since this, since this woman is a, is a widow, she doesn't have a man to speak for her, and she also doesn't have a means to provide for herself. So she probably doesn't have any money. There's no way for her to bribe this judge, for him to hear her case, or for him to even side with her. She has no status. She has nothing on her side. Her chance, her chances to get anything from this judge are slim to none. 
The only resource this widow has at her disposal is her persistence. Now, in our day and age, when we go up here before a judge, if you have to do that, there's normally some distance between us and the judge. But in this day and age, it was different. Judges didn't sit on high benches, and you didn't go to some ornate uh, courthouse to appear before a judge. What judges would do in this day and age is they would travel from town to town, from village to village, because there weren't enough judges to go around. And so a judge would come to town, he'd set up a tent, or his people would set up a tent, and there would be an opening at the front of this tent where people could come and stand, and they could shout out their case to see if the judge would take it. And then other people from the community would gather around at the front entrance to that tent and listen to the cases that the judge would take take to hear what his ruling would be and so basically what's going on is this widow she comes to the front of this tent day after day day and night and she keeps shouting out for the judge to take her case and for the judge to side with her she does this over and over and over again now we're not told this in the parable but it's possible this judge has come to town multiple times that's what they would do they would stay for an extended period of time leave and go to another village another village another village and they come back again to hear more cases it's possible this judge has been in town multiple different times and this woman continues to come back every single time he's there and she pleads with him she shouts at him take my case listen to my case to the point that she becomes irritating annoying even distracting to him and so the judge eventually gives in let's read the rest of the parable verse 4 For some time he refused, refused to listen to her. But finally he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or care about men, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually wear me out with her coming. This judge has had enough. He's tired of this woman annoying him, irritating him. And so finally he gives in, not because he cares about her and not because he wants to do the moral right thing, He's just tired of being bothered by this woman. Now, we need to be real careful at this point. We need to be real careful that we don't misunderstand Jesus' point because some people have. Some people have taken this parable to mean that if we just pester God enough, (laughs) then eventually he'll give in and give us what we want. And we can understand why some people might arrive at that conclusion because Jesus says, I'm going to tell you a parable how you should not give up on prayer. And then he tells a story about this woman who keeps pestering this judge until eventually the judge gives in. And so you can see why people may think, well, we don't need to give up on prayer even when our prayers aren't being answered. We just keep pestering God and eventually we'll wear God down and he'll give us what we want. Well, that's not the point. That doesn't really sound like a loving, caring God, does it? See, to get to, the, to understand the point that Jesus is making, there's an interpretive principle that we can't miss. And the interpretive principle is this. This is a parable of contrast, not comparison. Let me say that again. This is a parable of contrast, not comparison. You see, if you go into this parable looking for points of comparison like you do in other parables, then you're going to miss something. In fact, God then becomes the unjust judge who's selfish, who only does something good if there's something in it for him, who doesn't really care about us, who we can eventually wear down. And if you go into this parable looking for points of comparison, then we become the persistent poor widow who doesn't have any relationship with the judge whatsoever, who the judge doesn't care about at all, who our only role in life is just to nag God to death until he's eventually done being bothered by us and he gives in. And neither of those two things are true. So instead of looking for comparisons, Jesus wants us to look for contrast. 
And I believe this parable really comes alive when you realize these contrasts. And the first one we should notice right off the bat is this. God is not an unjust, selfish judge. He's a loving, selfless Father. See, when we read this parable, immediately we should say to ourselves, thank goodness our God is not like this judge. Thank goodness we don't serve a selfish judge who's just all about what he wants and getting something out of us. Thank goodness we don't worship a God who's bothered by us or doesn't have time for us or doesn't care about us. Thank goodness we worship a God who loves us as his own because we are his own. We are his children. You see, when we approach God in prayer, we're not approaching a shady judge who either wants to get something out of us or doesn't have time for us. No, we're approaching a father who desperately loves and cares for us. So what's the application for us when it comes to prayer? Guys, you'll never enjoy prayer until you realize who God is. You'll never enjoy prayer until you truly realize who God is. Let me put it this way. The better we know God, the better we will pray. Because what we say is determined by who we say it to. And I think sometimes in our prayer lives, we forget who we're talking to in prayer. You ever heard a prayer in a service, like a church service, and there's somebody up front and they're praying, and you start to wonder who they're talking to exactly because they get a little preachy in their prayer and it's like they're talking to you, to the audience, rather than to God. And I've said in pews before where I've thought, okay, who's he talking to exactly? I'm a little confused right now. I'm not sure. And now, that may be an extreme example, though we've probably all experienced it, but even in our own personal prayer lives, sometimes I think we forget who God really is. Way back in Matthew chapter 6, when Jesus' disciples asked him, Lord, teach us to pray, do you remember what Jesus did? He gave them a model prayer. We sometimes call it the Lord's Prayer. And you remember what he said? Matthew 6 verse 9, This then is how you should pray, Our Father in heaven. Now we've heard that so often. The model prayer, the Lord's Prayer, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. On earth as it is in heaven. We've heard that so many times that I think it's lost its shock value. But when Jesus' disciples, those early first century listeners, heard Jesus pray like that, they were probably blown away. Because they had never heard someone speak to God in such an intimate, personal way. See, in this day and age, there were groups of Jews who wouldn't even say out loud the name of God. There were groups of Jews who wouldn't write the name of God out. They would use an abbreviation instead of writing out God's full name because they held God's name up in such reverence, such a reverent way. And so his disciples' mouths, they probably hit the floor when Jesus talked to God as if he would talk to his own father, his own dad. And I believe Jesus used those words very intentionally. Because he knew that if we approach God in any way other than our loving Father, then our prayer lives would never be what he intended them to be. Yes, God is the Alpha and the Omega. Yes, God is the creator of the cosmos. Yes, God is above all. But when it comes to our relationship with him, he is first and foremost Father. I did a funeral one time with another preacher and after we were done, I was talking with him, and I was telling him he did a good job. He had half the service, I had the other half. And he looked at me, he said, yeah, you did a good job too, but, you know, I just can't get over you young guys, how casually you talk to God. 
I didn't know what he was talking about. I was like, what? What is that supposed to mean? And then I thought back and how the guy prayed during the service, and he used, well, what I would say, King James English in order to talk to God. And so he used a lot of these and thous, and I guess there's, you know, there's nothing wrong with that, but it's just not necessary. And so he was criticizing me for just talking to God, I guess like I'm talking to you right now. And he looked at me and he said, you know, let me ask you something. If you had the chance to call up the President of the United States and speak to him one-on-one, I bet you wouldn't talk to him like you talk to everybody else. I bet you would think through everything you're going to say, and you would make sure that you use proper English, and you would make sure that you didn't use any slang terms. You'd be very careful with everything you said. You would talk in a more proper way to the President of the United States than you would to just somebody on the street. And don't you think that our God deserves more respect than the President of the United States? And I looked at him and I said, you know, you're right. If I were to call the President of the United States, have an audience with him on the phone, I probably would not talk to him like I talk to everybody else. I probably would be very careful with every word I said and probably would talk a little bit more proper than what I do to just the average person. You're right. Unless the President of the United States happened to also be my dad. Because if he's my dad, then he's always my dad. And he's my dad first. I've talked to my dad on the phone a lot more since I moved to Oklahoma because I see him less. And when I call my dad up on the phone, I don't sit there for half an hour before I call him and say, okay, now what am I going to say to my dad? Got to make sure I get it just right. Got to make sure I use just right terms. My dad won't want to hear any slang terms or anything. I mean, make sure I get this just right. No, I just call and talk to my dad. And when I talk to him, I tell him things I don't tell you all because he's my dad. It's very personal. You might say it's casual, but he's my dad. And that's the way that he wants it. And I think that's the way God wants it. God could have related to us in any way he wanted to, but he chose Father. And I believe that the more you understand who God is, the more you'll be inclined to pray. And what ends up happening is, when we understand God's identity, then we better understand our identity. And that's the next point of application I think we can take from this passage. When we understand God's identity, then we better understand our identity. When we understand who God is, we understand who we are. And we get this from the next contrast we see in this parable. See, we aren't annoying, needy strangers to God. We are loved and cherished children of God. The widow in the story, she had no relationship with the judge. So she had no reason to expect anything from him. But we're different. We do have a relationship with our Heavenly Father, so we should have complete confidence that God not only listens to us, but He eagerly listens to us. See, not only are we allowed to approach God, but He desires for us to approach Him. As a dad myself, as a father myself, one of my favorite parts of the day is when I get home from the office because my kids are just so excited to see me. Now, Allison's excited to see me too, but my kids, they're just so excited to see me and they'll run up to me and Alex will say, Daddy, and Addie will say, Dad, Dad, and they're just so pumped that I'm home and I love listening to their day. Now, Addie really can't talk yet, so uh, she doesn't tell me everything about her day. She tries, but I don't know what she's saying. But Alex, he will. He'll tell me all about his day. The other day I came home and he said, Dad, I shot this toy rocket up into the sky and it went up to the stars and came back down and landed on our roof. And I looked at Alice and I'm like, what is he talking about? And she was just like, no, no, he had a toy rocket, he shot it, and he shot it at our roof. And that's where it stopped, it landed on our roof. But still, even though, you know, the story may not be exactly right, I love listening to him. 
And Alex knows, and Addie will know too. Now my kids, they always have an audience with me. I always have a listening ear. I always want to hear what they're saying. And they can talk to me about anything. Now there will come a day when probably Alex and Addie both feel like there's certain things they can't tell me. I'm laying the foundation now to let them know, no matter if it's good or bad news, you can tell me anything, you can talk to me about anything, because I'm your dad, and I'm going to love you no matter what. And Alex right now, he's just five. He gets that. He'll call me up at the office or call me when I'm with people and sometimes even FaceTime me. You know, iPhones have this great feature called FaceTime. The other day I was at the office and he called me up on FaceTime and I answered and there he is and he's holding up a basketball card, you know, like a baseball card, but basketball. He's holding it up and he says, hey, daddy, is this a good player or a bench warmer? And I told him and I explained to the player was, he said, okay, thanks, click. He was done. That's all he wanted, but that's okay. I don't care if it's something as pointless as that. I always want my kids to know I have an ear that's ready to listen to them. You know what's funny? I was thinking about Alex FaceTiming me on occasion. When I was first interviewing for the position here at First Church, the first few interviews that I had were done through FaceTime because I was in Kentucky and you guys were here. We're 12 hours away. So the first few interviews I had with the searching were done through FaceTime. And I remember I set up a tablet, you know, so that I could talk to the search team and they had it set up too. And before I called them or they called me, I can't remember how it all worked out, I remember making sure that that tablet was positioned just right. You know, I didn't want my face to look distorted. I didn't want to be too much shadow in the background or in the room. I wanted to make sure everything looked neat and nice. I wanted to be presentable before I talked to the search team. I wasn't sure if this is where God wanted me to be but still I wanted to make sure that I looked good and then I talked to the search team for the first time they didn't have that same thought no I'm kidding that's a joke no they were the same way they want everything to look neat and orderly you know and I, I get that but you know when Alex FaceTimes me there are times he FaceTimes me he's got chocolate all over his face there are times he FaceTimes me, his hair's all messed up. He's sweaty because he's been outside, or he's all wet because he's been going down a slip and slide out back in our yard. He calls me, and he's a mess sometimes. There are times he's called me, he doesn't have a shirt on. You know, he just calls me uh, through FaceTime, and he doesn't care at all. You know why? Because he knows right now I'm his dad. It doesn't matter what he looks like. I love him. And that's what God wants us to know. God doesn't hear our prayers because of our righteousness. He hears our prayers because he's our father. And he loves us. And he wants to listen to us. And he's not just listening. He wants what's best for us. See, when we understand God's identity, we understand why he answers our prayers the way he does. That's our next point of application. When we understand God's identity, we understand why he answers our prayers the way he does. And that brings us to our final contrast in this parable. Unlike the unjust judge, God doesn't have to be tricked into doing good for us. You see, if God was just this cosmic judge, this giant referee in the sky, then prayer would be something that would easily disillusion us or disappoint us. But when we understand God as Father, we understand that He loves us and He has our best interest at heart, then we trust Him. And however He answers our prayers, yes, no, maybe, wait, maybe He gives us something totally different than what we were asking for. However He answers our prayers, we know it's what's best for us. Because he's our father who loves us and cares for us. My kids hate for me to tell them no. They hate it. 
But sometimes as a parent, I have to tell them no because I have a bigger perspective than them. I see the bigger picture when they don't. The other night we were at somebody's house and they had a whole plate of freshly made cookies and Alex was popping in one cookie after another and finally I had to cut him off. You've had enough cookies. He got mad because I told him no. And he looked at me like I was just this tyrant or dictator or something. Like I was just this awful person. But I knew why I was doing that. In fact, the hosts, the people whose house we were at, they looked at me and said, oh, let him have one more. I'm thinking, you don't have to go home with him. You know, it's easy for you to say. But why, why did I tell Alex no? Not because I'm mean. Not because I want to rob him of fun. It's because I know what's best for him. And I was saying no out of love. When God tells us no or wait, or maybe he gives us something that we didn't ask for, he does so out of love. He wants to do what's best for us. And Jesus says this in Matthew 7, verse 9. He's speaking to an audience of people, and he says, If your children ask for a loaf of bread, do you give them a stone instead? Or if they ask for a fish, do you give them a snake? Of course not. So if you sinful people, you people who are flawed individuals, if you sinful people know how to give good gifts to your own children, how much more will your heavenly Father give good gifts to those who ask Him? See, good is who God is. And He wants to do what's best for us. But here's the thing, what's good for us isn't always what we want in the moment. And that's why Jesus ends the parable with these words. Verse 6. And the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God bring about justice for His chosen ones, His children who cry out to Him day and night? Will He keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice, that good will happen for them. And quickly, however, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Notice what Jesus says. His chosen ones, God's children, will get justice. They will receive what's best. They will receive good. And he will do it quickly. Jesus doesn't say, oh, they might receive justice, or it could happen. He says they will. It's a promise. And he says it will happen quickly. The problem is, his definition of quickly is often different than ours. But here's the thing. We have a limited perspective. He has an unlimited perspective. Our perspective is confined by time and space. His isn't. God sees the big picture when we don't, but he not only sees the big picture, when we trust him, when we turn our cares and our problems and our issues over to him, when we pray to him and turn our lives over to him, what he starts doing is painting a new picture for us, a new picture that turns out for our good. When we trust in him, it's not just that he sees the end of our story, but he weaves for us a new story that ends for our good. The question is not, will God do good? But it's, will you trust God to do good? That's the key. Will you trust God to do good? Because however he answers your prayer, it's what's best for you. The key to prayer is not, will he? It's, will we? It's not, will God bring about justice for us? Will God do what's best for us? He will, always. The key is, will we trust him? Will we trust him enough to continue to bring our needs to him? Trust him enough to continue to bring our pain to him, to bring our concerns, to bring our issues and our problems, 
to bring our life experiences, even to bring our celebrations, will we trust him enough to bring everything to him, knowing that no matter how he responds to what we're putting before him, he will always do what's best for us. See, I think the problem in so many churches and so many lives is that we leave God waiting. God wants to do what's best for us. God wants to rewrite our story so that it ends for our good. God wants to paint a new picture that we can't see yet. But we're not trusting Him to do what He wants to do. We're not continuing to go to Him, giving Him our needs, our requests, our issues, whatever. The issue is not will God do good. It's will you trust God to do good. Prayer is just a conversation between us and God. He's our Father. He wants what's best for us. He wants to hear from us all the time, anytime. Will you trust Him? Let's pray. Father, as I stand before you this morning, I just want to let you know that I trust you and as a church, we trust you. And so I lift up every single person in this room today and I pray that they will seek you that they will do life with you. They will stay connected to you. You've given us this great gift of prayer and yet oftentimes we neglect it. And so Father, we just turn our lives over to you, allowing you to weave a new story for us, paint a new picture for us. We trust you. And if there's anybody in this room who hasn't given their life to you yet, it's my prayer that today they will seek you, they will enter into that relationship with you so that they can do life your way and that new story will be waiting for them. In the name of Jesus, I pray, amen.